Hey, welcome back to The Taste, our podcast here at Schaefer Vineyards. This is Doug Schaefer. We are very fortunate to have a guy in here today, a winemaker, a winery owner, who I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. It's Bo Barrett of Chateau Montalina up in Calistoga. I think it'll be fun to dig into his story, his family's story, and the winery. So let's get started. Welcome back, everybody. Doug Schaefer with another episode of The Taste. We've got a longtime fellow winemaker, vintner friend. We'd never see each other enough. Bo Barrett, welcome. Hi, Doug. Great good, to be back, man. Great good to, to see you again. Great to see you. You know, you're Calistoga. I'm Stag's Leap. It's like, it's only 25, 25 miles, but it seems like a million years away sometimes. It is, you know, because we have the vineyards in southern Napa Valley, and I drive by, I should drop in and see Doug, but it's just, after you drag the caves and stuff like that, it's like, yeah, we should. Yeah. Too busy. It's, it's, you know, that's pretty typical because this is a busy business. <laughs> we are busy. Yeah. And, uh, but we usually, when we do see each other, it's usually not in Napa Valley. It's on the road. We cross paths out selling wines. And I don't know if Bo remembers it. I think he does because we've talked about it before. But we had the great, the best time together years ago on a road trip. You remember what, you know what I'm talking about? I absolutely do. I know exactly what it was. I think it was about 50 miles an hour and 50 feet in the air. Something like that. Yeah. We were at the Taste of Vale. It's first weekend in April. They, that's, they do it to get everybody up to the hill. And we were out. It's a two, two or three day thing. And we were out the night before at some big tasting. We were, we were tasting a lot, as I recall. <laughs> yeah. And I think you said, Schaefer, the best run. It's Avanti. You got to go tomorrow. I said, Bo, I got to do a seminar at, at noon. He said, see you there at you know, 9 o'clock, 9.30 sharp. We'll get a few runs in and we can split. So sure enough, I showed up and you showed up. I was really hurting. I was hurting. And so we went up the chairlift and we're going down this. It's a groomer run where you go like 40 or 50 miles an hour. Yeah, and, it's blue, black, blue again. Right. Yeah. Gorgeous day. Nobody on the hill. And we're just screaming side by side. And all of a sudden, I was in midair. And it was like, oh, my God, I just went off a cliff. <laughs> and and uh, Bo hit this, this lip at the same time. We were fine. We landed it fine. But we both got down. We were like, I think we looked at each other. It's like, that was cool. Let's do it yeah, again. That's, a, that's awesome. <laughs> but then we knew it was coming, and we never got as much air as not we did much, the first Not as much fun. That was a great day. It was a beautiful day. Didn't last long enough. But anyway, we've got, you know, Bo, you've got, I figure, three main stories. You've got Chateau Montalina. You've got your dad's story. You've got your story. Um, I think, you know, I think throughout some of your stories, you and I have a lot in common with working with our dads, which might be kind of fun. But start with Chateau Montalina. What's the history? Well, Montalina by... Oh, well, let's, let's just start at the beginning. So uh, as we see now, with the early success in Napa Valley, 1845 to 1860, right. by 1880, some money was starting to flow in because we got to remember Napa Valley was started by the farmers like Krug, for example, right. started, started the Charles Krug Winery and, um, you know, with the Trefethens and all those old wooden structures. But then along came people like uh, Alfred Tubbs, Senator Alfred Tubbs, or... 
um, you know, the guys that started Farniente. So when, like we see today, some people with money saw what was happening and the potential to make great wine in Napa Valley. So some of the wealthier people came in and provided the capital that really started California, where we started getting, you know, winning gold medals in Paris and the pre-prohibition years by 1880, 1890. Right, late 1800s. So Montalena was real successful. Alfred Tubbs, our founder, uh, built the winery, named it the A.L. Tubbs Winery. It was, Got it. Uh, built, it was, the winery was, uh, the vineyards were planted in uh, 1882, and the winery was built in 1886. That's, and it was state-of-the-art. It was wow. a stone winery, because you got to remember, like Krug, for example, the wineries here were made out of redwood. So they froze in the winter and baked in the summer. Right. So when he went to France, because he had this whaling fleet, so Tubbs had a cordage company, and as a huh. result, he had ships that sailed all around the world. So he hired a, a European architect. It's still, we do not know the original one. The winery hmm. was credited to the Napa Valley architect, Hamden McIntyre, but it is not one of his buildings. Because okay. now we're on the National Registry of Historic Places. So we know it is not a McIntyre building like Farniente, for example. Right. It's very different. So anyway, the winery is successful by about 1890. It's the fourth largest winery in Napa Valley. It's bigger than... Uh, Behringer. I didn't know that. Yeah. Really? It was. And he also started the Napa Valley Co-op, which is at that time, because again, going in the time machine, the history of Napa Valley, they would uh, put the wine in barrels and then put it on barges and take it to the city. Right. And the merchants in the city would then, you know, step on it. And to use a drug colloquial <laughs> term, they would cut it with stuff from other, like Lodi or wherever. <laughs> And so then, and they had a, there was only two wine merchants in California, and they definitely were conspiring to drive the prices down. So A.L. Tubbs, uh, being a very savvy businessman from San Francisco, he basically founded the co-op where that the growers up here then had the uh, fighting power to go against this monopoly okay. and get the prices up. So he was a, he was a very active guy in the early days of How Napa neat. Valley. And his winery, um, it was quite large. Um, in his first year in 1886, they did 137,000 gallons of wine. Wow. And that is actually the uh, agreed, stipulated agreement, what we pr produce today at Montalana. We actually don't make that much, but in year one, day one, year one, first harvest, they did he that made 100,000, 130,000 gallons. Which is how many cases? That's uh, like 70, 80. Yeah, 78,000 cases. Yeah. But, but remember, they didn't use cases. That's right. That's right. That's because they were making basically bulk selling. So they were so they didn't really bottle it here. They sold it bulk, and merchants bottled it. Is that that's correct. It in San okay. Francisco, it was the Uncle Sam <laughs> Company, and uh, the name that still la uh, lasts through today, not quite as big as it was during our life, but Grosinger's Wine Company. Right. Right. So the two merchants in San Francisco were Uncle Sam Wine Company, which I still <laughs> think that's a great one, and uh, Grosinger's. So those are the two merchants in San Francisco that controlled the market. Kind of like the Gallo and Bronco of the got day. Got it. And so <laughs> you've done the research. What were they? What were they making? Do you know what grapes were they, varietals they were making, or was it just kind of red, kind of Oddly white? Oddly enough, we we've <laughs> only so far most of the bottles we've ever found for from the post prohibition periods because his grandson Chapin Tubbs restarted the winery. So the winery is very successful, of course, over time. Right. Ale Tubbs dies. Uh, prohibition comes along. The winery goes out of business. His grandson had a stop start through uh, 1932 through 36. But by, okay. really by the beginning of World War II, Montalena was closed up for good. And, okay. uh, you know, happily. So, you know, Prohibition, it's quite interesting. The, uh, at the Bank of America foreclosure sale, <laughs> the brands went with it. You know, when they say lock, stock, and barrel, there's a, there's a armaments, you know, reference to that, but also in Prohibition, lock, stock, and barrel is, you know, the barrel, 
the stock inside and the lock on the door. So during Prohibition years, when they sold off um, a winery, it was lock, stock, lock, and barrel. Stock and barrel. Yeah. So, and it's strangely enough, so Montalena goes long, sleepy, it's been abandoned, the roof's collapsed, the vineyards are down. And I'll circle back to what the original yeah, plans yeah. are. Just let me finish the history. No, no, I love it. It's typical. So what happened was they go belly up in about 38, 39. And they sell the brand, Chateau Montalana. It gets picked up by a guy um, that is where uh, Fremark Abbey is now. I think it was called Martini or something like that. Different I got to jump in. It was called Chateau Montalina then? Or was but it no, tough? that was in the 30s. Okay. Yeah. So during Prohibition, they oper operated as Montalana Orchards and Montalana Vineyards. Okay. So okay. some of the vineyards actually did survive Prohibition. Yes, most a lot of it was planted to prunes during got that it. period of time. So and we got when we got there in 72, there were still some prunes. Okay. But um so then they operate as Montalena Vineyards. So his grandson, Chapin Tubbs, is the one who came up with the name Chateau Montalena. So he came up with that. That's that was right. One of so my that's the prohibition. Like, where did that come from? Cool. Uh, exactly. So, yeah. So they came from Montalena Orchards, Montalena their prohibition Orchards, farming company name. Got it. And obviously, in Mount St. Helena, you know, being at the foot of Mount St. Helena, mm -hmm. you know, happy for those of, who, those of us who drink once in a while. It's like, <laughs> it's not Chateau Mount St. Helena, it's, you know, Chateau Montalena. <laughs> <laughs> or my dad used to call it Chateau Monteleone. But anyway, back to the history bit. So a really good story about Napa Valley in the early days in the 72 when we're going to restart the winery. Right. Um, so they had sold to, to the guys who were at Fremark Abbey, and then the brand later got sold to Bob Drincaro's dad. So Sutter Home has it. Sutter Home had the Chateau Montalina brand name. That's correct. Okay. They had the trademark, the TTB brand name, and for mm. free, for $0 because it needed to go back, Bob Drincaro gave us the name back. He did. That's what kind of. That's the kind of welcome we got to Napa Valley when we got here. Yeah. Well, the Chincaro uh, family is yeah, great. They're just the best, <laughs> and he's uh, still one of my good buddies, yeah. as you know. So, yeah. but yeah, it was just just uh, very welcoming when we got here. How cool! But what they had planted when I got there. So now we had the prohibition varieties when I got there. Yeah. So we had. I don't know if you ever talked on the podcast before about you know burgers or Sauvignon Vert. Yeah. Okay. We those, had some of that planted here. Right. Those got. were the Thompson seedless of the day. Okay. So they were just bulk, cheap, high producers. You know, probably dry farm doing like eight, ten tons an acre right. on those eight by eight or ten by ten vineyards. So Sauvignon Vert. Then we had some Alicante Boucher, which <laughs> that was, and we actually crushed some of that. And uh, we had Mondus. Right. Uh, we had Petit Syrah. And quite a bit of Zinfandel. So when we got there in 72, my dad's idea was to make a great Cabernet vineyard because of the elevation and the soil and our, you know, we're on the Napa River. So we have, right. Montalena is on the alluvial fan of the Napa River. So if you know about Napa, historically, a lot of the great vineyards here on the alluvial fans, whether it's um, Araujo, Camus, mm -hmm. um, the Tocolon. Right. And so... Our alluvial fan is of the Napa River itself. So, you know, as you go down, you know, three palms, they're right. all. So we got that. So, and uh, everybody said, okay, Cabernet is going to be the future. And my dad it really wanted to make Cabernet. So as we replanted, we took out everything except the Zen and the Mondus and the Pets. And got so it. when I started working in the cellar in 73, we were still crushing a little bit of uh, Zinfandel, Mondus, and Petit Syrah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, but those went away in our 74 plantings. Uh, that's when we really uh, swept over most. And so the only original vineyards we have from that period or so, we have two acres of uh, Zinfandel left from uh, 
1968, I think. Nice. And we have about five left of the 1970, no, seven left of the 1974 cab. So in our legacy stuff. Cool. Um, Coming back to the history, because I've got to bring this up. You know, there's this, you guys have a a lake on the property right by the chateau. And the reason I bring it up is because I remember a couple toga parties. Yeah. (laughs) But... um, a little side note, Bo used to host toga parties after harvest, after yeah. we were all beat, and so uh, it was always a great, great like get-together. It was 80% through harvest, but everybody would need yeah, it. It's kind of like the cowboys riding into town and really cutting loose. <laughs> and and still, people like Doug would ask me, what did I bring? I said, bring a wheelbarrow for your wife to cart you home in. <laughs> but um, yeah, the toga parties, there's nothing like a bunch of people in sheets uh, paddling around the lake in the Chinese junk. That, that the was lake. some so, good times. So tell me Jade Lake, where did that, that come from? Was that your dad? No, not at all. So we actually have the ad. So um, the heirs and descendants of Alfred Tubbs were land rich and cash poor. So over the years, the properties got sold and broken up. And the 16 acres that the winery sits upon was sold in the early 60s to a Chinese guy named Yort Frank Wing. Huh. Yort Frank Wing's family had fled the Japanese invasion of Manchuria. But he grew up in Los Angeles, so he had had to leave China when he was an infant or a very young man. So when he got shot to Montalana, he had just the winery on the grounds right (laughs) in front of it, right by the Napa River there. Mm -hmm. So he decided to build a lake and build a Chinese garden. So you're Frank Wing. So he only owns the 16 acres, and he's not operating the winery, clearly. Right. And we still have, if you come to our tasting room and visit on the... you know, the displays, you can see the advertisement from about 1965 in the Chronicle and says, you know, <laughs> old chateau available for retreats, uh, spa, hotel, restaurant, not one single mention of wine. That's how sleepy the wine world was. Wow. You know, because before your dad and my dad got here, there is no question, even as late as 1976, they're saying Napa Valley used to be the center of American winemaking, mm-hmm. but now it's clearly Modesto. And that was as late as 76. So we've got to compare those stories in a second. Um, yeah. So, but so anyway, your Frank built the Chinese lake. And that, as crazy as it might seem, <laughs> over where the Arajos are now, right? And that was the Isley Vineyard, right? Right. Okay. Right. So, Isley, your Frank has the caterpillar that he used to build a lake, right? An old D4, six, you know, the one with the cables on the front. So he's got this cat, and Isley wants to build a pond, (laughs) and he's got, guess what? A 26-foot Chinese junk that he bought in Seattle. So so Yort Frank (laughs) trades the caterpillar for the Chinese junk and puts it on Jade Lake. So that's why we had that junk that we used to party on. Is it still there? No. No. The insurance company called and I, (laughs) when you were out there, it sank all the time. So what we decided to do is fill it up with that foam, you know, the two-part foam, kind of how great stuff is now. Right. There's this foam, so we filled the bilges with this foam so it wouldn't sink. But we were young and stupid. We didn't understand ballast all that well, that the boat's not supposed to float that high. So that's why it was so tippy. And when we had the party, everybody fell in the Yeah, it's not young and stupid. It's just we didn't have the nautical background. That's all. It's just, you know, all all about experience. Yeah, but the lake. And so then over the years, and he had built the plywood pavilions and stuff. And then when I went to China probably 10 years ago, and I was giving a talk on actually the history of American Chardonnay in Beijing, Mm -hmm. really before the Americans started you know, trying to import into the PRC. I saw at the Summer Palace what Jade Lake was supposed to look like and subsequently <laughs> bought all the Chinese tiles, and that's where they upgrade now. So now it really is a, is a very good um, American 
version of the uh, Summer Palace in Beijing. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So getting to your dad, because I'm real curious about because I don't know your dad's story and how he got to Napa Valley. But So where'd your dad grow up? Where did he come from? Well, he was born in the south side of Chicago in the Irish ghettos. My grandparents are Irish immigrants. I actually still have the you know, EU Irish passport. That's right. Yep, so I got that. But so he grew up, and his father was a fireman and a, a railroad cop. And, uh, f- and then he also worked for Sears Roebuck during the day. So okay. he was a railroad cop at night. Um, my grandparents had met in the U.S., didn't like it. Oh, they had gone back to Ireland. Uh, one huh. of the brothers was uh, either born or conceived there, the middle brother, Vincent. And then they moved back to the U.S. for good. Uh, I don't know the exact years, right. but it was definitely um, after World War II. Uh, he got his citizenship in the U.S., working for the Navy in World War One. So we've always been a hardcore Navy family. My dad had served in the Navy, right. submarines. Uh, my uncle's buried at Annapolis. He was a rear admiral. Got it. So a big-time Navy family. Um, but anyway, my uncle got transferred to Los Angeles when my dad was eight. So he grew up in Los Angeles. Huh. And like the Irish trifecta, it was a, uh, four kids. The, the youngest daughter passed away early. But the first brother, Annapolis grad. Wow. Rear admiral. Next one, priest. Monsignor, <laughs> and the next one was an attorney. So my dad used to say it was the, his mom was so proud because it was the Irish trifecta, you know. <laughs> but my father, and um, he was he was the attorney. Yeah, today. he's the attorney. He got it. So uh, he was an attorney in Southern California, and his lead client uh, was a guy named Ernie Hahn. And there's okay. two companies in the U.S. that say they invented the regional shopping center, aka the mall, the DeBartolos and the Hahn Company. So. As the Han Company started building malls around the world, my father was his lead guy. And by the time um, he was getting ready to do something else, he did 30 years. He had like 36 lawyers and all these people. And all they did was real estate and tax development. He did 30 years as a lawyer. That's right. Yeah. He didn't get to move. uh, You know, we won the Paris Tasting in 76, but he didn't get to move to Napa Valley until about 85. Okay. So he stayed a lawyer for a long time. That's what my question was, because he bought the property... 72, you said? Yeah, late 71. Late 71. So, okay, before we go any further, what was the, was he, was he a wine guy? Was he into wine? Not at all. What happened was as his clientele got more and more sophisticated, you know, because he'd come out of the Navy and he still, you know, until the day he died, continued to drink Jack Daniels and stuff like Jack and soda. <laughs> and uh, so what happened was as his clientele became more and more sophisticated, he had to go to these you know, fancy the, dinners the at dinners. like the Brown Derby and all these, you know, right. uh, what was Piero Salvaggio's restaurant in L.A.? Uh, Valentino. Valentino, yeah. So he's down in L.A. So he's in L.A. So he Got decides it. that he has to learn about wine. So to oh, learn about funny. wine, he goes up to the UCLA Extension. Got it. So the night class at UCLA, Croman, Nathan Croman, famous name in the business. So old Croman is teaching the UCLA appreciation of wine, extension class, and my dad learns four things, well, really one thing, that the great wines of the world are German Riesling, <laughs> Burgundy, Chardonnay, and Pinot. Uh, so that's just one. What's it called? Chardonnay and Pinot, the same thing. Right. That's you know, yeah. Burgundy, basically, right. as one. Um, the Rhone wines and mm-hmm. the Grand Cru of Bordeaux. Yeah. So, that's what it, so that's how my father learned about wine. And I was in high school at this time, and I'm sitting there at the dinner table, and uh, uh, you know my dad's got this bottle of wine, and uh, you know 
my dad has not been drinking wine. Like seriously, my brothers and I are his bartenders, <laughs> and we're making Tom Collins and gin sure. and tonics. And you know, I, I, I cannot remember pouring any glasses of wine at all these big parties that they would have yeah. at my house in Palos Verdes. My dad would have big parties, and we were the bartenders. And seriously, I can remember learning how to make a Tom Collins and a gin yeah. tonic and all this kind of stuff. But nobody ever asked for wine. So I see my dad with a bottle of Chardonnay, and it's the Bouchard Parrot Feast, the real one. You got a little more and he goes, God, man, this is amazing. You got to taste this. And I was probably 15, and it was pretty amazing. Well, this, okay, I got I to gotta, I gotta stop you quick. Don't, don't lose your train of thought, but we're tracking the same way. So I'm in Chicago. Dad, Mom, they're, you know, cocktails, bourbon and beer. There was never wine in the house. Same thing. My brothers and I would bartend parties. You know, I remember this lady teaching me how she gin tonic. So I had a shot glass. Dad said he'd just pour a shot of gin and then fill it up with tonic. And so I did it. And the lady looks at me. She goes, honey, let me show you how to make a real drink. And she, <laughs> she basically did a, a shot glass full of tonic and filled it with gin instead. Yeah. But uh, how funny. So that's how Because dad, you know, a lot of people I run into and say, oh, how cool that your dad was into wine. He did this. It's like, no, he did it because he heard there was a good investment. He came out. It was the the wine boom was coming, so that's where he came from. Yeah. When so how so did yours? But now, but yours started getting into wine. So is that what triggered it to come up to here? No. And so this is a that, and you know that you've heard it in our business, the class of seventy two or the class of seventy three, right. where all of a sudden twenty five wineries start up all of a sudden. And yeah. You might have been at that CEO conference where I talked about that because mm-hmm. you got to remember seventy two, the Vietnam War is raging. Right. The combined tax rate, the federal tax rate is like 73 to 78% because they have the war surcharges. And so so what happened was we've got John Conley as the Speaker of the House, you know, the tax, and, and Richard Nixon's president, and they conspired to write a tax law. So you got to remember, my dad's a tax and real estate attorney. It's his right in his Right. So the, um, the, I, the Restoration Act, I'd actually have to look at my notes to find the exact name of it. But basically, there was a whole dollar, American agriculture was also dying at the same time. So we have this really crushing tax rates right. of the Vietnam War. Things are not going all that great in 72. So to reinvigorate American agriculture, they pass a, a reinvestment tax credit where whole dollars... So if you make a million dollars on your shopping center development, you can put that million dollars into agriculture and not pay the 78 taxes, but you, 78% tax, but you can put the whole dollars to work in American agriculture. And if you th- that's right. Wow. You're looking at me. Now, I'm this looking, is passed for the Midwest. This is for Tenneco and all the giant agribusiness right. stuff. But what happened, what Napa really needed was the money. Because you, know, you, you own a winery. You know wineries run on two things, money and water. Right. You know, this this business is insane how much money we have to invest where you're growing grapes for five years and then you get Equipment. to buy barrels and you get to buy a bottling line. Then you get to buy a warehouse and a forklift and more people and, and a taste room. It's just, get it's, to sell it's just <laughs> insane. And I remember the first time my dad was bragging to his buddies. He goes, we finally made a million bucks. And he goes... You do all that work, plant those grapes, crush them up, all that for a lousy million bucks. Yeah, it took, man. It's it just took, like, you, took you 15 years. Talk about getting your balloon popped. Oh, yeah, it took more than that. But so anyway, um, <laughs> so basically my dad's job was to find an agricultural enterprise for his clients. Got so it. they looked at cattle. 
Um, and in those days, you know, nobody in the United States knew what an avocado was, much less a pomegranate, you know, mm-hmm. all this. And so the oranges, there's taxes and stuff. So my dad really went around. Uh, he was a pilot by that time, and he had his airplane. He flew all around California. Luckily, I got to go with him sometimes, and we go look at cattle operations. You know, I only wanted a couple, but he went a lot. Yeah. So we looked at some cows. We looked at some oranges. Um the pomegranates, avocados, all that stuff. And none of them were getting any tra- traction. So they're up at like the Brown Derby again or Valentino in LA yeah. and they're drinking a bottle of Mandavi Cab. <laughs> and the way my dad always told the story is he takes a sip of the wine and all of a sudden he just went, what about this stuff? As he points to the bottle. Yeah. And that's so that he's the next probably day or two, he was up here, flew up to Santa Rosa um, so started he, looking around. He was on a search. Yeah, he was on a search. He was looking for an agricultural investment. A product. And I am quite sure that, you know, I've told, um, you know, the Wetzels and stuff like that, because a lot of their dads, because I was so involved with my dad, you know, that he thought I was going to be a lawyer too. So as we went along, he was, you know, keep me apprised uh, right. of all these, um, the complexities of life. Um where, you know, people think of us that are successful in our business that we're just, you know, farmers and grape growers. And I go to great lengths to say, oh, you know, ah, shucks, I'm just a, you know, grape grower and working hard. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is, you know, half the time we have to be a lawyer and a diplomat and a politician and, you know, fight hard for things like the uh, direct to shipping thing and all the things mm-hmm. that we've done in our careers, you know, a, a lot of it is making wine is the fun part, you know, oh, yeah. but some of the more heavy lifting that you and I have done of things like the direct shipping and all these, all these oh, things just, that we've, that we've made the difference in. So anyway, um, that's how we got into it. Basically a class at LA and, uh, looking for a real estate Came investment. Up here, looked around, found it. So he found this place. So he found it was all, it was abandoned at that point. That's right. Yeah. The river collapsed in two places. The vineyards were totally run down. Uh, the winery was actually on a separate parcel. It had to be reunited with a hundred okay. acres of the vineyard. So that was the first thing. And, uh, a guy had, got here, Lee Passage, our first partner, who had actually successfully done that. So Lee Passage got the name back from Bob Dencaro. Right. He didn't give it to Jim Barry. He gave it to Lee Passage, one of our first partners. And then um, we started replanting the vineyard. But my father knew that he didn't know really anything about farming, seriously, mm-hmm. till the day he died. You know, if you see him in the movie, he's <laughs> in the winery and stuff. Nah, yeah. <laughs> if you told him, uh, hook up this disc and pull down that row or we'll shoot your dog, the dog would die. The dog would die. <laughs> you know, oh, no. Uh, hook no. up this pump and empty this barrel or crush these yeah. grapes, the dog's going to die. <laughs> so, Ed, but he was a ex- excellent, along the lines of Ronald Reagan, a very laissez-faire, a hard taskmaster and a very fair... Um, what would you call it? Not a dictator, but benevolent monarch. No, he he spoke his mind, and it was. I, I adored your dad. He was. A, yeah. I loved seeing him. It was so, great. So so he put together a team, and uh, our first vineyard manager. That was his first hire. His name was John Rolleri. John Rolleri had plowed grapes for Madame Depenza BV with a mule. That's how long his oh, experience was. And so wow. our first vineyard manager, the day he came to work, he was my age, now 65. He was an old guy. Because yeah. in those days, 65 was actually pretty old. Nowadays, right. it's like, that doesn't no. matter. <laughs> no way. But but anyway, so he got that. And then he hired this winemaker, Mike Gergich, who had a pretty good uh, track record. Yeah, where'd, where'd Mike come from at that point? Mike, uh, you probably read Dick Peterson's book. Right. He was over there. He was a lab tech over at BV. And I believe he was a lab tech over over at Mandavi too. And then I think he was on the winemaking team at Mandavi. That's right, I think but, you're right. But uh, 
You know, uh, it's with all these wineries that were starting in 72, it's, you know, a great opportunity for Mr. Gergitz. And he did he did a great job for us, you know, clearly. Oh, with yeah, his, yeah. You know, he was a, so that was, you know, if you look at me, I did my uh, apprenticeship under Mike Gergitz, you okay. know, and then after we won the Paris Tasting course, you know, he took off to start Gergitz Hills. So right, all, but all power to him. I'm with this. So I'm going back. So your dad buys it 71, 72. You, you, you get the vineyard. Go, so you had 100 acres of vineyard. Right. Which is great. And then uh, you're fixing up the winery to get and going. First crush was 72. That's right. And But your dad, he's lived in L.A. and he's kept lawyering. So Right, know. yeah, because in 72 we had to replant the vineyard. Yeah. So we don't make the estate Cabernet until 1978. Got it. Because we plant 72 and 74, so we don't have enough grapes until we crush the 78. 78, at that time we were on a four-year cycle. So the I was like 30 months in barrels, not the t- typical 20, 24 mm-hmm. we're using nowadays. Mm-hmm. So it was a four-year cycle on the cap. So we're not selling our first estate Cabernet until 1982. Got it. And so is that going to work or not? We don't know. So that's why he doesn't get to really uh, wind down his law business till about 85. So he kept, he wanted, he kept his day, day job. He kept it. He, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, so yeah, he had to sense. keep his day job. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Okay. So just for fun. We moved here in 73, same type of 30 acres of 60-year-old vines, same varieties you mentioned. You know, Dad started to develop Hillside Cab. His first vintage they bottled was 78. Sold it in 81. He wanted to get it going yeah, fast. Blah, blah. <laughs> well, that, if you think about back to, you know, my dad had gone to that UCLA class. Right. And if you look at Chateau Montalina today, you know, 40-something years later, right. what do we make? Riesling? Remember the four wines from UCLA: Riesling, Riesling, Chardonnay, Zinfandel, Cabernet. Zinfandel put an equal sign equals our own wine, right? And so that's what we make. That's you still the, make the four, the four we still wines. Make, yeah, we still make the you four wines. Yeah, we still make Riesling too. So, um, but basically, that was a cash flow deal. See, because the Riesling is a one-year wine. You crush it in September, right. October. You can start selling it basically the following June. So it's in the next year you get to start selling Riesling. Chardonnay at that time was a two-year wine. Mm-hmm. The Zinfandel is a three-year wine, and then the Cabernet the is an eight four. to ten-year project. Got it. So the Chardonnay and the Riesling and the Zinfandel are all cash flow products to get the winery up and running and to basically fund the, the, right. the Cabernet program. And so, it worked, you know. It worked. So, yeah. so circling back to you, you're growing up in Palos Verdes. You graduate <laughs> from high school right around seventy two. Okay. Yeah. Dad's bought the winery, and so yep. what happened to you? Where'd you go to? Well, wait. What was what was high school like? I don't know anything about it. What did you yeah. do? Well, I, it, I went. I was incarcerated work. at Bishop Montgomery High School, the Catholic <laughs> in, High School in, in LA. It was incarcerated. about. It was all the way down in Torrance. We lived in Palos Verdes in a town called Lunata Bay. It's now called Rancho Palos Verdes. It's it. all the million dollar houses. When I grew up out there, it was garbanzo beans and barley and <laughs> strawberries of all things. No, seriously, it was. It was all farms out there. So I had a really good uh, free range childhood, you know, at the, going into the ocean. Uh, my Huck Finn days were completely at the ocean. Um, okay. Rat, you know, uh, shooting fish and roasting them on the beach kind of thing, building forts out of driftwood. It was a very, um, like I said, very free-range childhood, mostly uh, around the ocean and water. In high school, I played water polo, swam, did not play football uh, or baseball, that stuff. I was always always aquatic-based. I was on the beach. I was on the beach. Um, But then when I graduated from high school, um, Palos Verdes is quite famous for there was a very tribal uh, surf 
zone wars. My beach, my wave, my girl, and it was being quite violent, and I didn't like that at all. Were you a surfer? Yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. early days. Like when they gave us the surf leash after Jack O'Neill invented, uh, invented the leaf. You know why Jack O'Neill had eye patch? You know, in the O'Neill wetsuits, the eye patch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Because he invented the surf leash. The first one was all shock cord, oh. and it broke and knocked his eye out. The, the thing he invented. Oh, <laughs> yeah. no. So, no, Jack O'Neill, he's one of the greats you of know, the aqua, aquatic I, world. I learned more things on this, this doing this okay, podcast. Okay, so anyway, so so my dad, so I graduated from high school. Okay. My dad says, what are you going to do now? I said, right. I want to surf. He goes, where are you going to live? I said, oh, well, right here. He goes, great. Mm-hmm. My dad's a successful lawyer. we got a Mexican cook, and yeah. she makes tacos for me at lunch every day. He goes, no, in this family, remember the Irish immigrant parents, in this family, you got to be a full-time student or a full-time job to live in this house. That's I love, the bad dad, news. I just love your dad. That's the bad news. No, he, he was <laughs> tough, and, but tough in a good way. And uh, so I said, okay, well, you know, and in high school, I was clearly one of the guys that just looked out the window the whole time. I, my brother, <laughs> my brother got way, my brothers and sisters got way better grades than I. Did. I always maintained a B average because if I got a B average, I could go ski and take weeks off in the winter and stuff like that. How, how many siblings? Five. Five. Yeah, so I'm so I'm the kids. oldest boy. Okay. So one oldest daughter, three boys in a row, and then uh, a baby sister. Great. So I was the oldest of the boys, and so I had always set the example. Yeah, the yeah. Oldest son, you know that deal. So anyway, um, he said, I can get you a job at the construction company and I can get you a job at the vineyard. I want you to try out both this year. So I went down and poured concrete building shopping centers with the Han Company for about $7.50 an hour in 1972. Really huge union money, big money. Big money. Uh, I got to buy a motorcycle to commute to work in and stuff like that. And we were building, I think that one was maybe Long Beach or Anaheim right. out there. So I poured concrete for about a month and a half, and then I decided, he goes, uh, go try the winery now, and they were making a dollar an hour. <laughs> and look what job I chose as a career. <laughs> a dollar an hour. A dollar an hour, yeah. So you come up to the winery, so, and Gurgich is at the winery. Right, the winery's not really running yet. This yeah. is 72, so um, the 1968 uh, Zinfandel had to be watered with a bucket. So that was my job was oh basically we pull the old grape gondolas, the trailers and a five bucket, gallon bucket and, and you dig a ditch around each right, vine, right, dump right, it in the bucket and then pull a star thistle by hand. And then by 74, I was working summers, uh, you know, putting in end posts and stuff. But then right. Gergich, uh, he liked my work product and he moved me to the cellar in 73. So the first uh, harvest I worked was 73. Got it. So, uh, and, and you've been there ever since. Well, meanwhile, so I started working there, and I worked all summer long. I said, "The hell with this! I want to go to college too." Oh, yeah. Okay, so I was good. All right. Yeah. Good. So, I, so I decided to go to college, and uh, again, hard, you got to get you appreciate my dad. The hard. first day the Snowbird tram was open, he the first lift. We are on the second lift, not the first. The first day the Snowbird tram was open, he had me and my brothers out there to ski Snowbird. You dog. I know the first you first dog. day. So that, that was, was nineteen seventy one. The winter seventy one, seventy two, Snowbird opens. First day we're there. All right, time out, time out, time out. You're a surfer, you're a beach boy. When did you get into skiing? My dad got us into that. Okay. He, no, my dad got me into all the fun stuff of the world. He dove, he skied, right. uh, he flew airplanes. Uh, so all the stuff that okay. I still do today. Another I thing. told you I just came back from a dive right. trip. My whole family okay. dives and skis. So I grew up like my dad. He was he was he liked the outdoors. Okay, don't lose your snowbird. I'm going to come back to it, but got to jump in. Same deal, Chicago, Illinois. Dad took up skiing at 20, 21, 
and turned us all on from yeah. age nothing to, you know. And he used to, we used to ski these little wimpy hills. and Well, not wimpy. There are hills in Wisconsin. But, uh, but then he dragged us out west and went to Vail and all that stuff. And he and his buddies discovered Alta, Utah, just a mile up the road from Snowbird. And so right about the same time, I'm like a sophomore in high school, he's dragging us out to Alta, Utah, because I remember Snowbird was opening and we thought that was the new cool thing, but it was a really cool thing. All right, so you're yeah, on the second well, tram it's us like us. We were from LA and my dad yeah. was, we were total Alta Park City. My dad, like I said, if I got a three, two average, he let me and my brother take a week off from school during the middle of winter. And we would take the train, two boys, like 13 and 12, we got to go with the local ski club from L.A. Pat Ski Club, and he would let us go on the train by ourselves, stay in the dorms at Park City or out to Goldminer's Daughter. Goldminer's Daughter, Gold yeah. Daughter, yeah. <laughs> I know her well. And so and he would let us, and we'd go out there by <laughs> ourselves and ski, and then we'd get on the train and come home. It was like I said, it was a very free range childhood. It was awesome. So our dads were the same. It was like I they were encouraging it. us to get into the good things of life. So. Cool. So like I said, my my neighborhood is getting into this very tribal. There's actually books about it, the tribes, oh, yeah, yeah. The tribes of Palos Verdes and stuff. It became part of Southern California surf lore for yeah. those. You know, those of us on the West Coast that are into the surfing, and you know, I still surf a little bit. Not waves about waist high now. I only stand <laughs> up because of my back. But the um, so then I decided to go to the University of Utah, and my okay. dad said, "That's great. I'll pay for your tuition and your books." I said, "Well, what am I going to eat?" He says, "Eat snow." I know where I go to Utah. I said, well, where am I going to live? He goes, live on your skis. I know where he goes. So I actually had to take my hard-earned money from the winery. And then be, so then, and he was right. I went, uh, I took classes at the U- University of Utah. So I'm, I'm a Ute. I went to University of Utah right. after three o'clock in the afternoon. So whatever they had, oceanography, Chaucer, whatever it was. Because I remember I'm going to be a lawyer and his judge buddies said, it doesn't matter. Your BA does, BS doesn't matter. It's, the law school barely matters. It's just pass the bar and then work hard. Because the law business is a lot like ours, actually. Everybody gives Harvard all the credit because the rabbits get into Harvard, but really the snails or the tortoises are the ones who really are the best lawyers. Interesting. Interesting. But anyway, so so I spent four years, four whole years, four four winters skiing 100 days a year. So I'd work at the winery, never had a car, always had, always pick a, uh, choose your roommates carefully. Pick one with a good four wheel drive car to drive you up skiing. (laughs) And uh, so then the, by 76, I had found out there was, uh, that's before Red Bull or anything like that. Right. And we were into mountaineering. So I decided to uh, go to Fresno State. And so I switched over to. But you did four years at Utah. Yeah. Did you get part time? Only two semesters. Part time. Yeah, because I, I never went up because I always worked uh, summer or fall. So I would oh, okay. really leave the winery. When things get slow after harvest, just like when you yeah. cut your interns loose, basically that was my job. I was a summer and fall, summer, fall. Uh, full-time intern, yeah. And so then I'd go to Utah, and when I ran out of money, I'd uh, go up to Idaho Falls and fish for a while. And then when I really ran out of money, <laughs> I'd come back and start working in the cellar around May. So I usually did May through the end of November at the winery. And that was until I went to Fresno State in 76. So 76, Fresno State. Now, Fresno State, and what'd you study? Well, viticulture and enology. Again, you got to get in your time machine. In 1976, you see Davis. Enology is under fermentation science. Right. It is not part of the, it's not part of the ag school yet. I, I don't know, I didn't go to Davis, so I don't know when they combined them there. So I went to, was accepted to both University of uh, Davis and Fresno. So I go to uh, Davis and I'm talking to him. I said, well, um, I'm gonna work in a small winery. I need to do viticulture and enology. They said, well, that's perfect. You get your bachelor's in one and then your master's in the other. And I said, how long is that gonna take? I said, oh, six probably six, years. seven years. Yeah. And this is 72, the wine business, or this is 76, the wine business is 
exploding, right? Yeah. I go down to Fresno, and this is a true story. So I go to Fresno, same thing. Go ahead and start talking to the guys at the department, the uh, counselor. Right. I said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a winemaker, and I need to manage the small winery, so I need to do – I don't need to do microbiology. I need to do the business management stuff because Fresno had a pretty good business school at the time. And, the, and, and I am not kidding. And one day, in four hours, I went from that counselor to see Vince Petrucci – Vince Petrucci walked me across the street to see the dean, and his name was King. And so I went from, so I, I got to, uh, Petrucci was second. I talked to the enology guy next, right. and then, then he got me in front of Vince, Vince Petrucci. And if you guys could look him up. He is just super famous in the California business. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I've Vince then walks me across the street to talk to the dean. This is in the same day, no appointment. And I walk up there and I tell the dean exactly my same story. He goes, great, we'll put you in Ag Econ as your minor. Yeah. And, uh, and then you can take all the business classes. And I, he waved me in, and that was one day. So that's why I went to Fresno State. And then I said, but I need to take 20 units at a whack. He goes, well, see how you do on the first 15. So the dean. So then I had to go see him after every semester until eventually I was taking like 22 units. And, uh, right. you know, I got a well, well, I was so, a man on a mission at that look, point. Well, okay, well, that's that's the difference. So at that point, you know, you you had those four years and you're skiing and you're working the winery. So it's like, not that you got serious because we never want to get serious in our lives. But you, you but were, I found that had, there was had, a job. Were, I, found were, it, were, I, f- I found the ideal job where you don't have to be in an office all the time. You can earn, at that time, it was an honest living. You know, you got to remember, Montalena doesn't make any money until mm-hmm. really about 1990, you know, until we started really being profitable. It took, took forever. Um, but... I found a job where I could be outside most of the time. And, you know, you have a winery. You know, it's not like an office. It's You go into a winery, it's like your fort with all your friends and your toys. And it's not like uh, having a job. You know, during harvest, you get the stuff. It's, you, know, you got tractors and equipment. No. And it, it's, it's, it's a gas, man. It's, I'm, 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 <laughs> we track the same way because I'm – Junior in high school in 73, we move out here. I'm a year and a half finishing up. Dad's, you know, all of a sudden I'm living on this ranch, this funky little house coming from suburban Chicago. This little, you know, there's no, <laughs> wine, there's no winery here. We didn't build a winery until 80. You know, but I'm coming back from high school seeing Dad on a tractor with a shit-eating grin on his face, you know, with a straw hat. I've never seen him so happy in my life. I'm working on the weekends, hauling rocks out of the vineyard, hating it, but kind of loving it. Yeah. And I see him working with these guys who, who their office is a pickup truck. There's the, the, the water consultant, the irrigation guy, the, you know, the guy selling grapevines. And basically, that's when it clicked for me and said, you know, because I didn't know he was going to do a winery. I just thought he was going to grow grapes. I really didn't. So, you know, I think he did, but he wasn't telling anybody, including my mom. And, <laughs> um, but I said, I, I went to Davis to be a farmer. So I went to, because I, I wanted to wear jeans and live in a pickup, live, work out of a pickup truck. So I went to Davis to do the viticulture thing. And, uh, and then lo and behold, I took some analogy, but actually I went another direction. I, I wanted to teach. So all of a sudden I started taking education classes and went and taught school for a while. But it's actually you, a big part of the job. Yeah. Well, that, <laughs> but but the, whole, the whole lure of the outdoor thing, you know, and not being in office, you know, now 30, 40 years later, I'm in an office most of the time or on an airplane. But, you know, God, you know, those first 10 or 15 years, you're in the cellar and you're out in the vineyard. I mean, it's just, it's great. It's a great life. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Did you know that you were going to have a, did you know that you, you were doing this gig at Fresno State and it was like you had a job to go to? 
No, not at all. Yeah. That that was a big surprise your, to me. Knowing your dad. Well, what had happened? So we're there. This is before we went to Paris Taste, right? I'm at Fresno. Right. And you got to remember, I don't know, your winery is, our winery was, OSHA wasn't really part of our job. And they had a couple of injuries. And so I was at Fresno. And at the California State Ag Schools, you can get a waiver out of school and miss some school and uh, not get kicked out. So I had to go in. So they had a broken arm and a chopped off finger. So Gergich called me and said, hey, I need some help for like 10 days. And so same team, go in and tell the guy I need to take the, right. uh, the ag school waiver for harvest to help out my family business. So they let me go on them. You know, everything's fine. Yeah. And, uh, but it, uh, not really, uh, what happens is that um, we win the Paris tasting and um, Mike Gergich leaves the company basically the next day. He's off with Austin Hill starting his winery and God bless him, good for him. That's his, his dream. He, he always followed his dream and this is wonderful. But my dad uh, now doesn't have a winemaker and Gergich took his whole winemaking team with him. Oh, no, so, no, so, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, the, the seller master, Aaron Mosley, oh, the lead seller no. worker. And they left this one uh, recent graduate of Fresno State, Gary Galleron, you know Galleron? Yeah, right? I So Galleron, Galleron's the only seller where Gressler, Rambila, all those guys, they go off to Gergich because they're loyal to their oh, maestro. So I, the, you know, and I can, you know, and I can see your dad lighten it up and he deserves to as much as he wants. That's, that's, yeah, that's, no, that's tough. Yeah, that was tough. So, but, you know, the golden lining here is unbeknownst to most people, there's a famous American winemaker, Jerry Looper. Yeah. And he had made all those great for Mark Abbey wines and now the Paris tasting, the also Rans didn't win either. You know, the wildcard team from five years ago, who the hell was it? Nobody remembers. But yeah. Looper is the only winemaker that had two wines qualify for the Paris tasting. He had the Fremark Chardonnay and the Cabernet Boucher. So I Looper, Looper is just coming back from France. Now you got to remember who Looper trained me, Tom Rinaldi, Heidi. I mean, this guy's, he was an absolute genius maestro. Like the, whether he really separated himself as for his own wines, it, the, his strength was his coaching. And huh. so, but anyway, Looper comes back. So my dad lucks out. Now he's got a straight up, straight shooting, honest as the day is long, hard working. <laughs> really intelligent guy, Jerry Looper, who's made a lot of good wines. And we love him because he's cool. He plays the guitar. He can play Eagle songs. He's got his beard. He's kind of hip, but he's cool. So all the younger guys, uh, just like, so my dad hires Looper. So Looper, I'm down at Fresno. I don't know any of this is going on. Yeah, right? yeah. So my dad's not Fresno, calling me. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm gone. Yeah, yeah. I'm down at Fresno State. So um, though, so Jerry says to uh, this guy, Gary Galleron, hey, I, I need an assistant winemaker here. And Galleron says, you should talk to Bo Barrett. He's down at Fresno State, and he worked for Gergish for uh, five years yeah. here. Yeah. And he's been – he I, and so Galleron said he's actually the boss when he comes back here. He's actually Gus's boss when he, when he shows up for Harvest. So Looper calls me up out of the blue at Fresno. Hey, this is Jerry. Jerry, what are you calling me about? Yeah. He goes uh, – I want you to come to work for me as assistant winemaker up at Montalena. I said, well, I got to I gotta do an independent study this fall. Right. He goes, that doesn't matter. You can do independent study. So yes, I only needed like three more units or something at Fresno to get out of there. So so actually, so I didn't really actually work for my dad till 82 when I came back after I'd quit Montalena. So I, I worked for Jerry all the way through the harvest in 1980. Got it. 
So moving up to 1980, the wine business now is really starting to explode, and people are walking out of Davis into lead winemaker jobs with no experience whatsoever, like maybe one internship in France. And so now I got you know at least you know five years' experience as I've done my apprenticeship for Mike Gergich, my journeymanship with Jory Looper, I got my credentials from Fresno State. So now I'm ready to be a, a winemaker. Yeah. Because so, you'd, you'd been more or less at, off and on at Montalina for like eight or nine years. Yeah, for 10. But yeah, it's 10 really, years. Yeah, eight okay. or nine years by Got this it. time. So I had told my dad I was ready for uh, to be a winemaker, and he said, good luck, and he sent me on down the road. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I know it, I know that. By the way, I know that conversation. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm ready to be the winemaker. And he goes, Jerry's my winemaker. Good luck, kid. You know, and so... So then I take off, and um, I'm sorry. Mindset. I'm sorry. I was teaching school. It was my second year, Christmas time. I was back for Christmas. I knew I was going to come back to the wine business, you know. And so I was actually said to Dad, and at this point he had a winery, he had a winemaker. But I just said, hey, I'm going to leave teaching and come back to the wine business. Never, th- never even thinking I was going to work with him at all. I just wanted to come back and start working in a cellar somewhere. And so I told him, I'd come back to the wine business. He goes, well, I don't have a job for you. It's <laughs> like, wow, can you feel a little nicer about that? Yeah. <laughs> but no but it, was, it ended up good. And, you know, yeah. we, learned, our, we learned a lot from our dads, you know, what to do and what not to do. Yeah. It's, it's like, like my daughter Chelsea, she's a winemaker down here at Matera now. It's the same, you know, the anti-nepotism yeah. thing that our dads taught us, is it's really important because you Very see important. so many wineries that are crushed by nepotism. You know, they get Junior and they're driving his Ferrari and the wineries in the toilet no, no, five years later. And, or wholesalers, you know, you, how many times you've seen that happen? Nepotism, it just crushes businesses. But anyway, so, and then um, I was down in, um, so finally I took a job. It's where Ancient Peaks is now. It's called, it was called Indian Creek at the time. Later, Creston right. Manor, Alex Trebek's place in right. Creston, California, down yeah. in San Luis Obispo. So the first winery I designed uh, was is now Ancient Peaks. It's their tank room now, but it was a cut and cover. I adapted some Idaho potato technology. The guys didn't have a lot of money. So I did a cut and cover before it had been invented. I took it from the, actually from the spud business. I'd been to Idaho so many times. So I did a cut and cover for these guys and it's still working. And so I was happily designing a wine. We're going to start do this build out thing. And uh, my dad calls me up and said, uh, this is completely out of the blue. I mean, I've just moved to Fresno. I've only been, I've been in Creston, you know, San Luis Obispo for, I don't know, um, a year? Maybe six months. Six months. Eight, six, eight months. Like yeah, not less than, it was definitely less than a year. Right. So I'm all down there and I got this vineyard. It's going to be 400 acres. It's going to be big. It's, gonna, it's a good project. I'm like the, a total monk living you're, by you're myself. You're the winemaker, right? Yeah, I'm the winemaker, GM, everything. It's like designing the vineyards. I'm just, this whole thing, I got this whole deal. And uh, dad calls me up and says, hey, I, uh, Jerry got a partnership job. Because that's when Jerry got the partnership job at Boucher. So Garrett oh. and Tatiana had offered Jerry a partnership, which my dad did not do because Gergich had been a partner and getting rid of that partner was not easy. So my dad, he worked for Jim, you're not a partner, you know. So, right. so um, Boucher down in Carneros. So he went to Boucher and Carneros. And so now my dad needs a winemaker. And he and so he goes, well, Jerry, well, who should I hire? My dad and Jerry were really tight. It was it was a tough decision yeah. for Jerry. I mean, I'm not kidding. Uh, Jerry and I have been trading emails this week. Huh. Yeah, okay. He lives in France now. I know because he, he left town and there's so many people in this valley and this business that don't know he, what a, yeah. a what a great guy he is and B what a fantastic winemaker and what he did and how many 
winemakers' lives he touched. Yeah, and, and the, his tr- like I said, the training, you know, because the Duckhorn, when Tom Rinaldi was right. there, you know, Heidi up at La Serena, I mean, and uh, not La Serena, but, you know, the Talavale and the Screaming Eagle, all that stuff. That really, you know, he was the coach that taught us a lot about how to do stuff. Now, Heidi with her dad, you can't downplay that as you, you said you <laughs> but in my case you know and i got to train under mike gergich and jerry looper so you know i had a, i had a benefit of having you know several excellent uh, mentors coaches right. in the business you know including justin meyer you know because i as you know i married up <laughs> so That's i got right. to meet justin on joe heights and all those guys by the simple fact of marrying you know one of the most intelligent and articulate and that that and, and beautiful young lady. Well, she didn't do too bad herself. Yeah, so, but anyway, <laughs> circling back, so the old man called me and uh, offered me a job in '82, and that's actually when I first started working for my father. It wasn't until then because it had always been the Navy. I worked for John Rolleri, or I worked for Mike Gergich, I worked for Jerry. I never worked for Jim Barrett. I always worked for his officer corps. Got it. And uh, it was a very and I still typically do run Montalana very very much a Navy style. We have officer corps, enlisted corps, and everybody knows where they fit in the huh. chain of command. And it's a very um, the thing is when you have a very tightly run ship, you can be very relaxed. Interesting. That's why you're so relaxed all these years. <laughs> you know, you look at me and go, Schaefer, why are you so uptight? Well, because you <laughs> work at the office, but I make other people do that. <laughs> We're going to have to go have a long lunch. So, um, so he so he called you up because Jerry said hire Bo. Yeah, and and, and you and went for it. Did you? Yeah, guys no. Well, long, long so, discussion. Yeah, that was. It took about three days because um, my father, um, I knew him by then, and he knew me pretty well. And basically, what we said is, I will take this job if you will treat me like you've treated every other of the professional winemakers that you've had. Because he treated him very well. He treated Gergich well. He treated Looper well. He was a very responsive, um, authoritarian, you know, firm but unreasonable boss, but you could always count on him. And mm. he was he was non-interfering, which is, you've been in the business enough. When the owners are interfering with the creative side, that gets to be a problem. Like, I need you to make the wine just like so Silver Oak or right. something. That, that's a recipe for disaster. And he never did that. He said, I need you to make Montalena wines. So basically, my conditions were, uh, you have to treat me like the other guys. You can never treat me like Sonny Boy. And he goes, you're darn, you're damn right. You know, wow. I can't treat you like Sonny Boy. If you make shitty wine, I'm going to fire your ass. Yeah. And I said, that's a totally straight up deal. I'm ready for that. So, it, so then... Uh, we would limit our father and son stuff. It was he was good at uh, compartmentalizing too. So we always fished together and flew together. And like when I flew with him, I was just by that time I was a better pilot. I was his chief pilot, and he right. would concede to that. But on the winemaking and things like that, and he he, he he kept a good check on me. Lots of times I wanted to buy a vineyard. You know, these are screaming deals that we should have bought. Right. As I looked at it through the you know times we have recessions, and I'm I'm really glad that he. Uh, had that rule to keep Chateau Montalana small that we're you know still the same size we were in 1990 and it really is a nice size that and he did it just because the Bordeaux first gross are 35 to 50 thousand cases and um, he didn't ever want to make more so and that we're still a small winery and we're still you know making a hundred thousand gallons of wine um, and we don't have to be all things to all people it, it, so a lot of his things that we didn't agree with I could certainly agree with his uh, Philosophy, but that we passed up on a couple of vineyards. Yeah, there's several that I, I wish we would have had to buy, had right. bought. Uh, the wineries that we went in to buy, I'm probably glad that those deals fell through uh, now. Yeah. 
that I had a couple. I've had a couple of those. Yeah, that yeah. you know the Lord works in mysterious yeah, ways. It's like oh my gosh, I'm so glad we didn't do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. and and especially you know when times are great, like the last five years, or you know it's our business. I was talking to David Duck. Did you talk to him yet? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, David Duck and I had we were yucking it up about how great things were. This is probably I don't know ten years ago when it was really one of the good cycles. Right. And he goes, and uh, what did he say? He said, yeah. Uh, it's never been better and it's never going to end again. <laughs> <laughs> so true. I think, well, you and I have been, you've been doing this the same length of time. We've had a good two or three cycles you know, mm, for sure. Definitely. Um, so help me out on dates cause I'm losing track. So you're, so you've, you became winemaker at Monolia 82, 83. Yeah. 82. Got it. Got okay. it. Another similarity, 83 for me here yep. at Schaefer. So we were yeah. tracking. No wonder I never saw you. Yeah, exactly. That, that was a busy time in 83. And then my dad finally moved up around 85. So that was, that was the toga part of yours, like when I'm running the show. Yeah. And it was the, the inmates are in charge of the asylum. You know, and then the old man moves up and things kind of calm down a little bit. Good. And then um, I when, stayed when, through. When you, well, when, when you jumped on board, did, did you make a lot of changes or just kind of keep going? Because you guys had a pretty good problem. Well, yeah. They were my. Jerry really uh, was terrific on uh, shape of the estate cab program. You right. know, he was he was clearly uh, master, more masterful uh, in the Cabernet world. And even though we had some pretty crappy equipment at that time, you know, gotta remember we're still picking the day and it's hundred degrees. Yeah. But yeah, but um, so Jerry's mastery was really the estate Cabernet, and that was really his job to make sure you know cement that program because you know he takes over seventy seven, and that's seventy five percent estate cab. So r Jerry really develops the model land estate cab. Yeah. So then I came up uh, in uh, two thousand eighty two, and it wasn't until like eighty four where we started filtering into barrels because uh, we had a lot of Brett and. Mm -hmm. You know, and back in those days, you know, what they used to call terroir that you and I both now was really the bread. The terroir was really a was bread. A, was was a you know was a microbial signature mm -hmm. of the house. So our bread tasted different than your bread, which is different than you know Heights's bread and everybody else's bread. And, you know, and you know, the most amazing those you know, are never, amazing I, wines. Still, I never thought about that, but I think you're really right. No terroir, it was yeah, definitely and, all bread. and it lasted longer in France than it did here. We, yeah. The wineries in Cal. This is what that's really when Napa Valley took over. The world, if you think about it, where we really started making a run of the success of the Bordeaux Chateaus is when we stopped using so much bread and started using our, our great vineyard flavors. And yeah. that was really, yeah. that really suited Napa's niche in the world where, you know, your vineyard, your Cabernet, it could be the same rootstock and the same clone and the same farming, but your Cabernet is going to taste so different than so mine, different. but your bread's going to be more similar <laughs> than dissimilar, you know what I mean? And you could use the same cooperage. So this is where the Americans uh, in Cabernet or Napa Valley in particular yeah. really starts well, once really start, impacting once the world. Once we cleaned up our wines, it yeah, happened once, with us. Yeah. I mean, amazing. Yeah. So in 84, I started filtering. And these are yeah. tough decisions you're making, like taking out the vendor press, making different press cuts. And so, yeah, sure, I, I made some changes that were all, you know, in that progression that you know, Schaefer has done all of the successful wineries have done the exact same thing. Take your, your core mission to make these amazing wines, but then to make them, 
as the bar of quality. You remember in the 70s, 80s, it was easy to find crappy wines. Oh, yeah. F from oh, anywhere yeah. around the world. All now you go to wine shop, you can go to the, the cheapest, most inferior wine you find at uh, Long's Drugs. And I'm not even talking about Costco. It's solid. Well, they're, it's okay. These are solid products. And the, so in the early days, you make a wine, it was decent. This is great. Right. But now, you know, everybody's making such amazing wines. So then, you know, whether it's here at Schaefer or us or all of our, you know, in our league, certainly, we all have to work really hard to, you know, keep up, you know, because you're after my customers and I'm after yours. You bet. You know what you I mean? bet. And that's a very, it all keeps us honest. But, you know, the beneficiary of it is our customers. Oh, there's, there's can, never been more great choices across the spectrum for the consumer. Yeah, so, so but anyway, back to the bread. So, yeah, should we change things over yeah. the years? And, you know, the other funnier thing is I should get through equipment because you think oh. about the old Healdsburg Juicer Destemmers. Did you have one of those too? Oh, yeah. This is called the Healdsburg Crusher Stemmer. And, man, it, it's like the wearing blender of the Stemmer Yeah, we crushers. call it the cuisine art. And, uh, <laughs> like, our Chardonnay, the... our Chardonnay always had this green color. And I was <laughs> talking to yeah, Warren one time. And he goes, I could always pick Montelain out of a taste. And I said, why? He goes, I love the green color. How do you accomplish that? I'm going, <laughs> you know, it's that old Healdsburg uh, grape disintegrator. Oh. But yeah, we didn't change that till 89. Because, you know, remember 87, remember 88? Cr we used okay. to crush Chardonnay in that thing. Oh, oh yeah. Riesling? Oh, <laughs> oh no. You didn't Riesling. <laughs> this, is before whole, this is before whole cluster pressing where we put everything through the crusher. And yeah. it was just like, and with white grapes, it's just kind of, oh, it's kind of not really We crushed, but do. we do some about half the Chardonnay still. Okay. We have, but we have the plonk, which is a totally different. Deal. Yeah. So we're not using the green part. Actually, I want to put some green in this year just to see okay. how it works out. All right. But uh, yeah, so Warren said I could always tell the Montalana Chardonnay because the thing, and also remember how long we used to use barrels. That was the most amazing thing, like our Chardonnay oh, barrels, like twelve-year-old no Chardonnay barrels. Kidding. Oh, yeah. You know something? Can I? Can I? I'm interrupting again, but I, I'll, you know, I'm on board. I'm the winemaker. I've been here. I don't know. Five, six, seven, eight, you know, eight or nine years. Elias has been with me, six or seven of them. We're we're starting to turn the corner. You know, we still got a ways to go. Um, I'm trying to be, you know, but, but I'm close with dad and, you know, he's, you know, I'm in the loop on budgets and financials, so cash flow. So I'm, you know, I'm tracking with that because he's teaching me, which is great. And, you know, so, so I'm real sensitive about that. You know, I don't want to spend too much money. So, you know, I had barrels. I had old barrels. I had like eight, nine-year-old barrels around here. You know, we'd get a few new ones every year, but, you know, like, you know, and, you know, doing the right thing. And then within a year or so of that, we promote Elias to winemaker because dad says, you know, Doug, you got to be president. Run. I said, great, great. So the first thing Elias does is he walks into dad's office now that he's winemaker and says, John, this is what I need. And it's like, you know, I need, he, needed <laughs> like, he needed like a whole lot of new barrels. And it's like the, the price tag was major. And, and dad goes, great, we can do that. And I'm like going, wait a minute. <laughs> I was trying to be. So no more nine-year-old barrels around here. Yeah, I no, Jim, that. Jim, on the other, my dad, <laughs> that was what, because he didn't really know exactly what we're doing in the winemaking. And it. his mantra was, if it makes the wine better hmm. and it makes your job easier, I will find the money for it. Yeah. So, right. but we were always very responsible about that. I'm, I'm, I'm not joking. We still have a 1984, the first forklift we ever, the first new piece of equipment <laughs> we ever bought was an 84 cap forklift. <laughs> we still have it. It's out at the vineyard shop. So when you learn up, because everything was borrowed in those days, like when we bottled, you know, oh. a Mike Gerger's would send me down to see Roy Raymond over at yeah, Behringer, yeah. and I'd borrow a hand labeler, right. and I'd go somebody else, and I'd scrounge up, uh, you know, 
yeah. the corkers and stuff like or that. You need a hand spinner from somebody. Oh, yeah. Can't borrow All it, that you know, stuff. That's, yeah. We were always you know, borrowing or you need yeah. a dump truck, you got to go get it. And yeah. It was, you know, it was pretty, you know, I don't know. I can't remember when the first year we bought a brand new tractor. It was probably about 1990, yeah. something like that. We had a lot of old tractors yeah, around here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, her name earlier. Uh, at some point in this whole timeline, you meet your bride, Heidi. How'd you guys meet? Well, we met t- in two ways. <laughs> okay. Okay, we met professionally first, and it didn't work out so hot. But she was out of that great class at UC Davis. There was a class at Davis that got finished, I don't know, 881, whatever it was, where it was Heidi and both Rose and Bruce Cakebread and Randall Graham and Rollins Souls and right. you know, a whole. So she came out of there and Jerry Looper had hired the Texan Rollins Souls who later had the great career at Argyle, okay. up, in, up right. in Oregon and now Rocco Wines. But so Jerry Looper hires Rollin and Rollin comes from Davis. Right. And I happened to have an apartment in the upstairs of my house called the Hovel and Rollin moved into the hovel. So Rollin says, hey, let's start a tasting group. And I hadn't been in a tasting group because I had this uh, infant son. I was a, By this time, I'm a single divorced parent with full custody of a two-year-old child. So wow. I have an extremely busy life. I'm working in the cellar full-time yeah. and have a baby all by myself. My folks still live in L.A. You know, I have no backup here. So yeah. it was... Anyway, Ron starts this tasting group. People come to my house, and he invites you know Bob Levy and Heidi and all of his mob from Davis. And so then there's me and Gerard Zanzonico. You remember him? Gerard, He's yeah. At Del Dotto. Yeah. And uh, so Gerard, so we get this tasting group. And uh, but it was you know Heidi walked into my house, saw what was going on. She had no interest at all what was going on there. So then. Uh, <laughs> I quit Montalena and I went to Europe and I came back and I was coming home from Park Hafner's wedding down in Berkeley, you know, Hafner up in Alexander Valley. And of course, now I got my skinny tie and I'm all cleaned up. Park and, and, Park and, Park and, and Sarah. Lab, Park and I were lab partners at UC Davis. Okay, so anyway, Park yeah. gets married to Sarah down yeah. in uh, Berkeley. Right. So I'm coming home with my 80s skinny tie and all that yeah. stuff. And I walk in the Yachtville Saloon, which I'm sure you remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. They had. So I walk in the Yachtville Saloon and Heidi's sitting there in a UC Davis crew sweatshirt, you know, so I'm dressed up and she's not. And it was just just the lightning bolt. We looked across the room. Next thing you know, we were going on a date. And oh man! Thirty-three years later, you know, two kids, and she helped. Me. So then, you know, she even with my, I was kind of a project that you know, <laughs> a diamond rough because I got this kid. And pretty all I did was hunt and ski and fish, and you know, right, do whatever I wanted. And it turns out, and fly airplanes. And so Heidi was taking flying lessons. She skied. Uh, she didn't hunt or fish, but I taught her how to fish, which is one of my greatest regrets of my life because she always catches more and bigger fish <laughs> than I catch. And then for hunting, she didn't like the blood part, but uh, she, I got her into mushroom hunting and so forth. And so she likes that. So it just turned out uh, she's just we just had so many mutual oh, interests. And I told you when I walked in today, we just finished, you know, I was 24 hours underwater, you know, 20, 24 dives in 14 days. Wow. And, you know, she was with me on every single one. Nice. So that's nice. Good. Yeah. So I've met Heidi, and uh, clearly she, with Dick Peterson, having been the winemaker at a BV uh, at that time, he was down building the Monterey, had right. built the Monterey Vineyard. Right. So I went down, met him down there. But you know, he was already a big name in the business by then. Yeah. And uh, Heidi was working for Justin Meyer. So when I when I met Heidi, that's what that's what I didn't catch earlier. Okay. Yeah. When I, I met Heidi, she, I didn't know she that's where it's that Silver, clearly Silver, that I married Silver up. Silver Oak. Silver Oak. Silver Oak. Yeah. Got and it. this is when Silver Oak is still at Franciscan because she's working a lot at Franciscan. So before they built Silver Oak, 
uh, France, uh, they were making the Silver Oak at Franciscan because Justin was the winemaker right. there. So in the early days of Silver Oak, Heidi was part of that. And so by uh, starting to hang out and eventually marrying Heidi, then I got to meet, you know, all the, that circle that she'd grown up with, whether it was, you know, the Heitzes and oh, yeah. you know, the Martinis and basically everybody. And so it was definitely, I went, you know, from the Bush wow. leagues into the big leagues. <laughs> and like I said, I very proudly say I married up. There's no question about oh, no, that. Yeah, I'd say it's mutual. I'd say it's mutual. You know, Heidi's great. You're, uh, you're no slouch, my friend. And, you're, you know, we were all projects at that age. Yeah, that's You true. know, I mean, I, I can't go there because... <laughs> My, my, my kids are great because he said, Dad, we love all your stories. I said, and they kind of go, God, you were a derelict. It's pretty funny to listen to them. <laughs> but uh, rolling along, I got to talk about 2008 because all sorts of things happened in 2008 um, for you guys. I think the winery was almost purchased. You were in the, you, were, you had the Bottle Shock movie based on Monalina, and you and Heidi started a wine brand. Anything else happened that year? Or was that the big No, three? the financial crisis hat. Oh, yeah. Don't forget about that. So so what, So what? let's start with the story. You guys uh, were in contract with some French folks. Yeah, it was actually it was a Swiss guy, Ribier, okay. that owned Costa Astronel. And he'd been putting money in and built, rebuilding that one. And my dad had come to the conclusion that his estate was too complicated. Monoland was difficult. And it sure. probably, for the family business, would probably not survive the estate tax business. And, Good point. Um, you got to remember before the economic collapse of late 2008, it was a boom time on everything. And boom. the prices were really high out here because that value was still just crazy. So people were offering him crazy money for the winery. And he said, I'm going to sell it because we yeah. were a monarchy at the time. And a lot of us did not want to sell it. My mom in particular won 47.5%, me who owned five. But it was a limited partnership and the general partner is the king. Right. So- we worked for uh, a while to uh, find the right buyer for the place. And the Rabier guys uh, and the Costa Estranel, they had the right idea because we saw what they had been doing mm -hmm. and the investments they made. So anyway, we made a deal with them and they actually sold the winery. And I quit being the winemaker for them. Um, and that's when Cam Perry was promoted to winemaker. Okay. And I was then I was master winemaker and basically stepping away. And I was going to be like a titular staff for the three to five years. And then right. you know, they're going to own the winery. And it was good because their winemaker was a super pro guy. Uh, and he was a Basque guy. He wasn't a Bordelais. And so we got along great. But the Bordelais guys and the Champagne guys who was running it, I'm not going to name names, but these, this guy was like a Champagne Wells guy. And we're all saying nice things like, oh, we're going to work together. But he was... Not going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Yeah. yeah, there's People that know me know exactly what I was going to say right there. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, and it wasn't a pud, but he was a pud. But anyway, uh, so they move in for the harvest of 2008. And so because now I need a job to right. do because, you know, that was 10 years ago. We're 11 now. Yeah. So I need a job. So Heidi and I had our own family vineyards at that time, and we'd been selling all, all the grapes to uh, Montalena. Okay. And then some to Heidi for La Serena. So we decided to cut out a little bit and make the Barrett and Barrett. And that okay. was going to be my, I was going to build, we bought a property at Old Toll Road. I was going to build a small winery there. And we were going to build something for our kids because nice. I convinced yeah. that so that because our daughters by this time have decided because our kids are growing up and I had done the same things. Like, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're a marine biologist, a doctor, <laughs> astronaut, lawyer, surgeon, right. Indian chief. 
do not go in this business. It's way too much work for way too little money. Hmm. And it worked like a chap. They're both in it. Yeah. <laughs> I got one that got off. My son, Seamus, the first one I That's talked right. about. He's an attorney in, He's an attorney. in Manhattan. That's great. <laughs> so, well, what got to remember, he grew up in a farm when... Uh, you know, the only meat we ate was deer meat or fish. I listen, caught, man. You know? I remember seeing you with lugging him around, yeah. like at like at you know wine tastings or you know barbecues yeah. and stuff. It's yeah, like, exactly. Hey, Bo, I didn't know you that well. It's like, it's like, Bo, you got a kid? He's like, Yeah, Schaefer, I got a kid. Yeah, like, no, I was only twenty three. Yeah, <laughs> was it's like okay. Irish Catholic kid in college. What are yeah. you gonna do? You know, no, no, like, it's fine. it was good. I learned a lot from him too. I owe him a great debt because I learned so much from having a huh. kid. I really grew up fast, and yeah, you know, a lot of my friends that never grew up that you know them and they never went right. anywhere by by being forced to grow up so fast like 23 I was responsible for somebody besides myself that's a tough thing to do you know because yeah. most people are just you can barely take care of yourself when you're 23 but now you got this two year old infant it's like oh good luck with that you know Boy, that'll, that'll get you tuned up but anyway uh, I forget where I was going on how we got well you guys you started Barrett and Barrett yeah we started Barrett and Barrett but then the economic collapse hit and oh, the yeah, dollar, got to remember, the dollar goes up 14% in 48 hours. I'd forgotten about that one. Yes. Okay. So all of a sudden, they want to renegotiate the deal. And the said, Swiss. no, the deal's in dollars, pal. We don't care about the euro. So uh, they moved oh. in. So we had two closings. And just, you know, technically, we had the operational close because they wanted to make any money that was made from the movie coming out. Because remember, everybody, before the economic collapse, so the movie's going to come out, so if the film's going to come out, then there's going to be sales and blah, blah, blah. So right. they had an operational close, and then the financial close, well, and the financial close failed. So then we got the winery back. And the best thing that happened was my father had come to regret the decision to sell it. So, you know, as I said earlier, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Mm. I have told Mike Thompson, our congressman, before I said, you know why the economic collapse happened in general? <laughs> so that Chateau Montalana could be kept by the Barretts. <laughs> because it worked like a champ. It, it really worked. did. So those guys bailed. Um, we got the winery back. And the best thing that had happened was everything I told my dad about, just like Elias, I said, Dad, we got to replant these vineyards. And he goes, hey, I'm 75 years old. I don't even buy green bananas anymore. I said, it doesn't, <laughs> we got to plant these vineyards. No. Right. So he wouldn't give us the money to replant. And the winery is a 1972 batch process right. size winery. It's right. all eight or 10 ton tanks. It's all batch process. This is history. Nobody makes wine yeah. like that anymore. We're all in this, you know, um, yeah. viticulture specific, micro lots and stuff like that. So we need a new, brand new cellar. You know, it's going to be another five or 10 million bucks. And so mm -hmm. the best thing that happened was, and I said, and we're not going to use your money. We won't use partner's money. We'll just use, you know, line of credit or borrow money. And because right. we're profitable, we, we can, can afford them. And to, to his credit, my dad said, you're right. So it really took the French guys telling him what they were going to do with the company. It was the exact same thing that I've been saying for 10 years. So then he took the wheel, he took the brakes off. He said, okay, it's your company. Run it the way nice. you want. And I'm still the CEO, but I'll do what you tell me most of the time. So that was like 11 years ago. That's right. Yeah. So nice. uh, we got the new winery. So we gutted the winery, did our seismic retrofit, um, started a replant program. Right. And uh, did all the things. And so by, by the time he died, Montalana was in, really in a great uh, renaissance now because you know, yeah. we're making better wine we ever made. We have mm -hmm. the equipment, the tools, uh, you know, state-of-the-art facility. And he saw all those things happen Good. before he passed away. Was he happy about it? He was extremely happy. That's he was so excited cool. as we are, you know. It's, That's so cool. Uh, so, yeah, he saw he saw all that good stuff. He did not, unfortunately, the 2008 through 2012 plantings all got red blotch. So oh. luckily he didn't live long enough to see that very expensive yeah. flop because we're now in the third planting. So that second planting, 
pretty much we had planted about 40 of the 100 acres there on that one and so that's all got to be changed out yeah for and look what we've gone through we all had the phylloxera thing back you know late 80s early 90s and now we got this red blotch thing it's there's always something it's a, that's why I tell people it's, it's like you got, it's still you agriculture. Know. You know, yeah, we had yeah. a we we had a a hedge fund manager from like Connecticut bought one of the vineyards, one of our leases. You know, he's right. now our landlord, and uh, we were buying the grapes from the previous landlord that's not on our lease. And he got these guys come in, and he's going to start making wine and stuff right. like that. And he got smoked the first year. I said, "Welcome to agriculture, pal." Yeah. You know, and you know that's um, it's almost like we should. Uh, publicize that it is agriculture because sometimes the wine press says oh this is this is gloom and doom this is the end of all it's not because we've had numerous things like this you know 10 or you know 8 to 10 in my career and we get through it and we figure out how to do it Pierce's disease this and that and you keep we, we figure out how to do it and keep going on just like anybody else in agriculture and it's kind of like this is part of the game but tell me about tell me I want to hear about the movie Ha! The movie, okay. The movie so, called Bottle Shock, basically the Chateau Montalino story, right? Well, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Word of By the way, true. you were really handsome in the movie. Yeah, I thank you. you. Except for the straight hair. I had, the, I had the afro. You remember when I had hair. Uh-huh, I do. I had the big blonde afro. But um, the movie, what happened was down in Los Angeles, you got time for the long version? Yeah. Okay, so remember the name Gary Galleron. Right. Well, Galleron starts his own brand, and he's down in Los Angeles talking story about the old days of Chateau Montalena. And a guy named, I believe, Sherman Schwartz, no, um, Ross Schwartz, and his, and his dad was Sherman Schwartz, who had done Gilligan's Island. Now, he's a Los Angeles uh, entertainment attorney, but like any Los Angeles entertainment attorney, he's going to write a screenplay. So Galleron tells the stories of some of the hijinks <laughs> that have happened at Chateau Montalena over the years. So this guy writes a screenplay. Usually the ones with you in the middle of them. Right? Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Just so wondering. a ragtag team of misfits are getting into all kinds of mischief and making these great wines. <laughs> so he writes this screenplay called Bottle Shock, which is essentially the Mighty Ducks make wine, or the Bad News Bears the make bad wine. The Bad News Bears. Yeah, Got whatever. Right. <clears throat> so that, he brings us this screenplay to ask, ask us to sign off, and I just, <laughs> and I just could, no, this is not, this is not, this is not going to work. Good for you. And so then a couple years go by, several, and, um, they, these other guys, Randy Miller, Jody, they said, we've bought this screenplay. We're going to fix it up. We're going to do a, this movie, Ball Shock. It's a love story to California wine. Right. And so I said, oh, yeah, sure. <clears throat> What's it going to be, eight minutes long? You know, it's like a bunch <laughs> of guys working hard for one tasting. How are you going to make a movie out of that? It's going right. to be eight minutes long. They said, no, no, no. We're going to add a bunch of drama and we're going to add some romance to it. I go, oh, great. You know, um, but no, who's going to go to a movie? Everybody knows what happens. And he goes, right. yeah, but um, everybody went to Miracle on Ice. And I said, okay, well, whatever, it's your money. So they write the screenplay, they ran it by us, and it was as they re- it made everybody look good. There's no bad guys in this right. whole movie. Even the French just come off as surprised. And so they get us, my dad in particular, to sign off for the life rights. As you know, you got to sign off this stuff. And some people like Mike Gergich, you know, he decided not to be in the movie hmm. because they had all these contacts. Because how did they get Alan Rickman and, you know, uh, Dennis Farina and, right. you know, Bill Pullman and even the young Chris Pine? Well, for Gergich, they were going to have Danny DeVito. 
<laughs> Did and, you know that? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so that's why he pulls the plug. He says, if you say Gergich anywhere in this movie, I'm going to sue you. So then they couldn't get insurance because Gergich, the, over the lawsuit's right. sitting there, so then they can't get their film insurance. So Gergich basically votes himself off the island because he doesn't like his character. So then Steven Spurrier, he still doesn't that's like funny. it. Because Steven, he was a young, handsome, articulate right. guy. He was not a grumpy old guy at right. all. So he's not absolutely nothing like Alan Rickman. Right. So, so I had to call him up. I said, Stephen, you are the hero of this movie. He goes, but I'm nothing like Ellery. I'm nothing like the Bo Barrett character. Yeah. The guy's a composite. He has nothing to do with me. I was always the hardest working guy and the first one to work, right. the last one to leave. You know. But then he gets all the girls, so I guess it's a good trade. So I had to talk <laughs> Stephen into doing it. And you know, he still makes fun of it, which is fine. But anyways, that's what happened. So then they make the movie, and it was. But basically how they... You know, everything kind of happens. Dad, the wine pink, sure, it did, but it happened, you know, the winter of 74. Right. Right after bottling it pinked, and it mm -hmm. wasn't like in the summer of 76. Right. But they they made things dramatized. It's, it's Hollywood, you know, it's definitely a Hollywood yeah. version. It's fun. <laughs> was it fun? It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. And so I'm really glad I don't do that for a job. Yeah. It was, you know, seeing how slow they move and how frustrating it is and how, I mean, oh, God, I could never do that job. It, yeah, it takes a long time to get something off the ground. It, it, it just to shoot one scene, it's just like insane. It's like I could, I could never do that job. But yeah, it was a guess. We had a lot of fun. Heidi worked on it more than I did. She was the technical for the tasting and a bunch of stuff. I only did, you know, stuff like making sure there were wood bungs in the hammer, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, <laughs> so some of the more modern stuff wasn't in there. But yeah, it was it was a gas, and it's uh, it was really good for Napa Valley because I actually think that it helped because it, it did it did terrible at the box office, it totally tanked. But once it got on the airplanes and the airlines, people started coming back to Napa Valley. And you remember your taste room, our taste room, mm -hmm. two thousand ten. It was pretty damn good. It was dead. great. Yeah. So when the film came out, people started coming back to Napa. That kind of co-located with us with the Vintners and the Napa Valley Visitors Board. Everybody says, you know, Napa, we're still here. We're not wiped out. You know. Yeah. So that was great. It was good for the valley. I think we learned a lot after the fire. I think that that experience from that one after the 2017 fire is how we got the people coming back by November. We had people coming yeah. back, and I think we learned a lot from that. Previous, you know, like as you talked about in winemaking, where we learn from what we've done right, what we've done wrong. I think that uh, for all of us to, you know, ha encourage people to come back, it was a good idea because I do think I think tourism, you know, not to go totally off subject, but remember the first winery, tasting rooms have always been a part of Napa Valley, mm -hmm. and they forget this. The first winery built after Prohibition was Louis Martini. Mm -hmm. What did they have? A visitor center. That's right. And then Robert Mondavi. You know, Mondavi gets the credit where his, but it's actually even before that. And where it was 36, 39, you could ask Mike, I don't know, you know, when they started the Martini, but it definitely had a visitor center. That's right. And it wasn't controversial at all. Neither was the Robert but But the Robert Mondavi visitor center was controversial even then. How don't remember that? How come? Because you, you, know, you were in junior high. Okay. That was 66. That's right. You have to like be oh. like me. like a Yeah, I was still in Chicago. Half-witted historian. You know, but where I learned a lot about the Napa Valley history actually was when I broke my leg. Talk about that skiing where I hit the tree. That's right. When I was 49, then I broke my leg. And then, you know, Calistoga is not an AVA. And I had been with the Vintners Association right after 9-11. Um, I had gone with the Vintners to Europe. And they had the little Vestra map with all the Calistoga AVAs on there, and they wouldn't put Calistoga on there. 
that I was arguing with the vintners and said, who cares what the government says? Everybody knows Calistoga is an Appalachian. So like, that's where I was going to ask you about that because you're the one that spearheaded the AVA right, for Calistoga. Right, but we're all busy. So yeah. So I go with the vintners to Europe, and this is right after 9-11. Hardly anybody's traveling. The Berlin Wall had just fallen, remember? Right. So it's pretty, you know, not that far after, you know, the uh, fall. This was 9-11. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, a yeah. long time ago. So anyway, uh, I got back and I said, we need to have an Appalachian in Calistoga. But, you know, like you, I got busy. I yeah. don't have anything to do. Well, what happened was I had a really bad injury. I had a double tibia plateau fracture, and I couldn't put any weight on it. And I also was taking some pretty uh, serious painkillers. And I'd keep going into work with my crutches. And I'd be talking to people, and you know, the guys who work for me—they're typically super loyal. I said, "You, you don't sound like you think you sound. You shouldn't be coming in here anymore." Got it. So, so I said, "Well, now what am I going to do to be creative?" So basically, I could, uh, but my left leg was broken, so I could still drive, kind of. And I went down <laughs> to the library and I wrote the Calistoga AVA petition while I was recovering from. You wrote a, it. I really, yeah, I wrote it myself. Yeah. So Congratulations. I, man. I, yeah. So I wrote it, and it was really. And I have to thank Rudy. You know Rudy von Strasser. Right, right. So what had happened is that Rudy had done the Diamond Mountain. Right. And so I go over there, and it's the same thing. I'm all opiated out. Rudy says, "You know, it's not like you think it's out, but he knows that you know I still want to be productive, even though right. I don't look so Sound, good, yeah. and I don't sound so hot, but I still want to." you know, get something done. You know, you, people like me, I, I, it's hard yeah, to sit still. Right. So I go and see Rudy and he goes, don't form a committee. Just, he goes, read the law. It says any interested individual. So oh. I read, I read the regulation. It says any interested party or individual. You did so, it by yourself. I did it by myself. Yeah. And then you shared it with everybody and just went for it. But uh, so talk to me about your kids. Your kids are all involved in it. Well, except um, my Seamus. Seamus is a lawyer. But Seamus yeah, the, the is a, he's a, he's a, on uh, the federal court in New York. He's uh, in the White Plains and uh, the city. He does EEOC work on the other side. So Got he it. represents people that have been treated badly by their employers. Oh, so he's him. on the other side. Good but it's him. also helpful to have those guys. So he's, he's a very passionate guy, and he works really hard to uh, help his clients um, get money out of people that have been very evil. Good. So he's doing Good great. Good for him. He's doing terrific. But my younger two, Heidi and I daughters, are both in the wine business. So our daughter, Remy, uh, she's San Francisco-based. She does sales and marketing for our family, for Heidi's brand, La Serena, and the Barrett & Barrett. Barrett & Barrett So she label. does that one. Great. So she does that. And... Uh, our youngest daughter, Chelsea, is in production, and Chelsea's had a long career working her way up the anchor chain, as we say, that she's, you know, did internships in Austria, and then down for two hands in Australia, worked for Masalachi over She worked at two hands with yeah, 12 for 12 feet. Oh, no, 12, not 12. Yeah, yeah 12 feet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She worked with 12 feet. But, uh, and so then she worked uh, in production for seven years at big wineries, and now she just took over on the Matera for the Kanat family. So oh, she's great. a new winemaker at that. And uh, she's got two uh, granddaughters live in town, Calistoga. So like last night, I was just over there holding a nice. four-month-old. And, Congratulations. Know, getting drooled Granddad. on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> getting drooled on. It's We've like, got, you know, I have a daughter named Remy, and yeah. I've got a couple grandkids too. So yeah. we're tracking. Yeah. Um, I got to ask you one thing, man. Um what were the best years working with your dad? The absolute best was probably after the um, sale where uh. he let go of the responsibility that he made me uh, responsible for. I was always responsible. I never had the authority yeah. to make the thing. So he had all the authority and he felt responsible for our mistakes. Right. And when he got comfortable with letting it go to the French, 
then he got comfortable with letting it go to me. And like uh, when we had the opening of the new cellar and um, the, you know, the 40th anniversary party of the company, the new cellar had been completed. Yeah. Um, and that was in 2012. We had our 40th anniversary. And uh, you know how wineries, when they have a big anniversary, they invite the Napa Valley Hawaii Poloi. Right. What my idea was that to, hi- to invite everybody who had, he let go enough. So he and we invited everybody who'd ever contributed to Chateau Montalena in a contributory fashion. So we had we, every former employee we could find, every grower, you know, the bunch of galoopies, you know, people that we had in the city yeah. for 30 years came. How he cool. gave a general amnesty. All the people been fired for stealing and theft, including somebody that we've mentioned previously. Right. So he had a general amnesty. And so then seeing the excitement of building a new cellar and the replant and stuff, so that, that was really a, a, a really a wonderful time because, you know, he was older and he let go and he was just letting us tear up the pea patch, you know, because yeah. that he realized when the in, some of the inmates aren't totally crazy, that like this, the dreamers and the, that we work even harder being let loose. And, you know, that he then, you know, he loved when I would find just amazing things like, you know, we're going to build a new winery. <laughs> and uh, you go down for a permit. Right. We have this old building, right? And he right. goes, and so I go for a permit. Why didn't, uh, what about your National Registry of Historic Places? Because mm-hmm. you know, then when you're going to build something, it's a federal project. I said, right. well, that's why we never applied for that. They said, well, the rules apply to you. So I went in and I was trying to get the Teflon out and how to right. escape that, reading all the regulations. Because remember, I was going to be a lawyer, so I mm-hmm. can read regulations. And I find this magic word, tax credit. <laughs> if you... Restore a National Registry of Historic Places building for its original purpose, <laughs> not a tax deduction. It's a tax it's a credit. credit. Beautiful. So that's how I got my dad to give me the money. So you know, so he was still tough that you had to find other ways yeah. around it. And then you know, like the seismic retrofit, all the construction is exempt from property tax and stuff like that. So he, we really had fun working together. Working together to figure it out. Yeah, working how together cool. to figure that out. And, and he was so proud of that new cellar. He he really loved it because and the progress we had made. And so, and he quite enjoyed his notoriety subsequent to the film. He 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 he, he really did. <laughs> Me on the other hand, I'm kind of embarrassed by the whole thing. But I tell you the truth, it's it's kind of it's cool. It's fun. They want your picture taken yeah. by them. Okay, it's cool. It's, yeah. You know what why do I like my job? It's like, you know, I like being a big cheese. Yeah. You know? It's it's, yeah. it's 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 fun. <laughs> That's why I don't want to quit, you know? Great. Speaking of the wines you make where can people get them? Chateau Montalina. Restaurants, stores, website? Yeah, we're, we focus primarily. We're pretty well distributed. We have a national, mm-hmm. we're distributed nationally, internationally. We are in, uh, you can get them from Korea to Norway. Right, um, great. And uh, there are definitely especially wine shops around the country. As I said, we're not making that much wine. It's, it's you can't, like some of the, you know, definitely not the Costco or the bigger chains. Mm-hmm. We really don't have enough product to support those guys at the level that we'd like to have a good partnership with. Right. Um, we have the, you know, Montalanta.com or Tasting Room. Website. Or we have a really well-developed club. They can order uh, order online? Order online. Website. Easy Great. order online. Great. Yeah, Montalanta.com. No Chateau, no wine, just Montalanta.com. Montalanta.com. Yep. Yeah, M-O-N-T. All right. It's easy. And uh, local wine shops all over. The and best restaurants. And everybody needs to know that they need to drink Montalina Cabernet because that's the Cabernet Elias and I were trying to emulate 
35 years ago and we're still working on it. Yeah. So, well, um, it's because you're not sexy. But it's a different yeah. world. Man. <laughs> what I like about your guys is I can always tell that it's not from Calistoga. You know what I mean? That's really good. Well, I, 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 I've told you this story. You don't remember, I hope not. But back when we were trying to figure it out, because we'd taste other wineries' wines and we'd taste yours. And I was like, oh, God, this is good. <laughs> uh, he's like, I want to make wine like Bo. Yeah, me too. And, you know, you had really rich, strong, well-textured tannins. I mean, that's part of your, your spot. Yeah. And we're like, we got to get tannin like that. How are we going to do it? So we'd pump over and we'd pump over and we'd press like holy hell just to try to get these tannins. Huh. And we couldn't do it. And all of a sudden it's like, Maybe these grapes just don't do that. Yeah. They, they, maybe they do something else. So it's like, oh, that's when we, the, the light bulb went off. It's like, hey, pay attention to the place where your grapes are grown and, you know, work with that. So yeah. just like you do, you know, so focus on what your place does best. Yeah, exactly. So. Ours could be a little bit rough and ready because that's the world we live in. That they could be too tannic. Yeah. That's the yeah. world I live in and you can't get them tannic. I can't get enough. So, yeah. It's, uh, but the modern world is pretty cool because, you know, when you get the A-pods and the automatic pump over devices yeah. and you pump over like five minutes, it's like, but then that's one of those things it's like, pfft, turns out just 10 pump overs a day, you're good to go. <laughs> it's awesome. Bo, thanks for coming in. It's great to see you. Thanks, Doug. I was really happy to come down and not say hi to all your fans and friends and all of our, I really uh, think when we talk about our business, like being in the leagues, you know, the competitors like you, Dave Ramey, the guys that keep us honest, it's really cool. Yeah, all good. All right. See you, man. All right. Wow, what a great story. I think we covered something like 120 years. Bo's a great guy. He's seen everything in the wine business and has stayed on top being smart, working hard, and hanging in there through the tough times. Chateau Montalina makes beautiful, world-class wines. Do yourself a favor and check them out if you haven't. And next time you're in the Valley, be sure to visit the winery. It's a really beautiful place. Thanks for downloading The Taste. If you want to help us out, please rate and review it on iTunes as that helps other people find the podcast and more great stories like the one we heard today. If you'd like to reach us with any comments or ideas, please send us an email at podcast at We'll see you next time.